This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Summit Racing's Al Noe with special guest Aaron Brown, owner of The Garage Shop. Here we go. Thank you so much for joining us today. Aaron is a trailblazer in multiple ways. He's earned multiple land speed records and dominated as a race car builder for almost 30 years. Aaron created The Garage Shop in 2010 to take his passion for speed and turn it into a successful race car fabrication business. And that's actually the story of how Aaron and I actually met. So we took a uh, Summit Project vehicle, our Tesla Model 3, down to the land speed race in Blytheville, Arkansas, the ECTA event. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I grew up loving the Aero Wars cars. And I see this beautiful orange Daytona, and I thought, we got to go see that. So Aaron and I met, and Aaron's shop fabricated that and a Talladega Torino with current technology, basically NASCAR Cup chassis, Aaron, and current engine packages, and both of those vehicles were phenomenal. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's talk about some of your history. Where did your love for cars and speed come from, and how did you get doing this? Well, I, I grew up in a small town in south-central Pennsylvania, and literally down the street was the uh, famous Bob Weikert, the number 29 livestock sprint car, World Outlaws car. And it, I used to ride my bicycle down there, and Mr. Weikert would let me scrub out the stock trailers just so I could wash the wheels on the sprint car. <laughs> so I was never allowed to touch it or anything <laughs> like that. But, uh, you know, I, I spent some summer days down there, and it just became interesting to me. You know, from there, I grew up in, in that little town. I mean, you either worked at the grit mill or the book factory. There wasn't much in that little town, and it was kind of too small for me. And so I joined the Navy. After I got out of the Navy, I came home, and really, town didn't change. And uh, three days after I was home, my dad said, you really need to go do something. This ain't going to work. And uh, he handed me a roadmap and the keys to a 79 Ford Bronco that was only had three wheels on it, pretty much. I had a little toolbox about this big, and he handed me this Auto Week magazine that had uh, Whitcomb's shop in it. They had just won the Daytona 500 or something. And he said, go down to North Carolina. They got these stock cars. I think you'd be interested in that. I didn't even know where North Carolina was. It's not like today. Yeah, you got that. out the old map with the truck. <laughs> Flip it open and get lost five times. Yeah, I remember my dad used a lot of explicit words trying to follow that on our vacation. You know? Yes, yes, so. yes. So, uh, you know, I had enough money for a week, but, uh, you know, I came down here and I was really determined that I wasn't going home. And uh, I just started walking into some shops and I ended up walking into the Skull Ford Thunderbird shop. That was a day that changed my life forever. And Kevin Hamlin was the crew chief there. There was only eight or nine guys there, and they were looking for a junior guy. When I was in the Navy, I was a you know welder, worked on a lot of pretty high-tech projects. I had, so I had some skill, but I didn't know anything about really race cars. And Kevin hired me, and my first job was, uh, I think, $400 a week. In, in doing that, the shop foreman there, his name was Wayne Bumgarner. That was Bobby Isaac's nephew. He said, do you have anywhere to live? I said, no, I'm staying at the Lake Norman Motel. That's rated like negative 10 stars, maybe, <laughs> back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> motel, pretty, motel, right? Right. It was, it was 15 bucks a night, you know, and I had, <laughs> I had a pound of bologna and some bread. And uh, Wayne said, well, my aunt, which was Bobby's sister, has a trailer house on her farm that she'd like to rent for $350 a month. 
And I'm like, well, that's that's not even 25% of my paycheck. Perfect. So, uh, you know, I, I moved in there immediately and got to be really, really close with, with Goldie, which was Bobby's sister, and, and Johnny Witherspoon, and Junior Setcher, which was Bobby's nephew, and, and the whole family, and, and Bobby Isaac, and Randy, and, and all those people. They took me in like family. You know, I, I, I had zero money, zero money, and Goldie would make me a country ham biscuit in the morning just to make sure I had something to eat during the day. So I kind of got my feet wet there with the, on the skull team. And, and that's how it kind of all wrapped in, you know, later when we talk about the K&K car, the Dodge Bobby car. And, you know, from there, I worked there for a couple of years. And back then, when you went to work somewhere, you didn't really rise up. You had to kind of change jobs to rise up. So then I went to work uh, for Kenny Bernstein at the Quaker State, the number 26 car. That was a great job, and Mr. Bernstein was one of the best owners I ever worked for. I worked there the year, halfway through the year. I'm really happy you got a great job. He goes, I'm going to sell team. Really? Oh, <laughs> oh. You're like, you're the best. <laughs> right. Right. Great. <laughs> yeah, this is great. You know, and that's when Steve Kinzer drove and then Hutt finished the year. And, and oh, then that's where, that's where I met Donnie Allison, too, which we'll, we'll get down to that, you know, for the Talladega. And uh, so from there, I, you know, I worked at Jeff Bodine's. And then when Ray started the Dodge, the return to Dodge deal, you know, I went to work for Ray and I started off as, you know, as a body hanger fabricator. And he came to me one day and said, hey, I'm looking for somebody to work on the R&D team. So then Casey Atwood was driving the 19 and I can't remember who the crew chief was, but he left. And this is like a week into my new deal at Everham Motorsports. You know, we were doing projects and just doing stuff. So they moved Sammy Johns to crew chief to 19. And Ray came to me and said, hey, would you like to take care of this R&D stuff? Yeah. It, it, you know, so that was another career defining moment. You know, and I, and I worked there for quite a while. A friend of mine from Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, Andy Johnson, they had started this program called the RAD program. And they had hired a guy at Everham to run Everham. And it just, he was kind of changing the direction of the groundwork we laid. And it just, I didn't feel comfortable there anymore. So uh, I accepted the program on the RAD program at Dale Earnhardt Incorporated with Andy. And that was another, it was like two of us. And that really grew. And everybody there that worked on those Speedway cars was passionate and an expert. There was no single person that was responsible for the most dominant speedway program on the planet. It was just a time and a place where, where a very large group of people, whether it was the engine department, the aero guys, the chassis guys, the teams, it was where everybody really came together. We, we, we were unstoppable between 2001 and 2005, six there. Who were the um, primary sponsors back then, Aaron? Was that the uh, the Wrangler days or was that after? No, no, it was uh, Budweiser um, Junior, okay. the number eight Budweiser car, and then it would have been the 15 Napa car, and then the number one Pennzoil car. My dad and I used to be huge NASCAR fans, and Earnhardt throughout that period was unbelievable. What was it like working for the team back then? Was it just nonstop thrash, crazy hours? No, I, I worked on this. The R and D program was a you know year round. Basically, what how that would work is we would have our cars for the following Daytona 500 when the new cars were getting loaded to go to the you know this year's 500, and we wow, worked on we were that far ahead. 
Well, it took that long. Uh, we, I mean, there was thousands of hours of wind tunnel testing. We would go out to Goodyear, Arizona, to DPG, and do coast down testing. Uh, there was a massive amount of effort put into that almost 24-7 throughout the year for those four races. There was always something to do. There was always – and that's back when they had a rule book that, hey, okay, here's the rules. Okay, well, you didn't say anything about this. <laughs> then next, the next race, there'd be a rule about that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Aaron, about the creative interpretation of the rules. You know, Smokey Eunuch and his, his books – and his life stories and some of the things he did were just amazing. And I always admired that because it's not cheating. If the rules don't say you can't do it, then game on. You're allowed to do it. And like you said, the rules adapted and changed constantly to, to kind of shrink the box. What's your opinion on that? Because once you take a racing series and you you really put it into a confined box, it really started with the car of tomorrow, right? The, the car of tomorrow was another defining moment in my career. We built the very first one of those at the R&D shop at DEI. You know, Hendricks was building one RCR, and we built one too. <sighs> that was a very defining moment in my career because that car was the basis of removing. And it's not cheating. I wouldn't call it that. I call it creativity. Yes, and, sir. And, yep. and working a little bit harder. I mean, if if the engine rule says it's three fifty eight and you make it three sixty, that's cheating. That's yep. a solid rule in the book. You know, if it says it's supposed to have steel rods, if you put aluminum ones in, there's no interpretation there. There's defined rules and then there's gray areas. A defined rule is it's not really worth messing with. It is what it is. But if if there's a way to wiggle around some gray areas, that's where we we used to focus. And, and when we first built that CO, the first COT car, I, just, I made a conscious decision in 2007 that I wasn't going to do this anymore. You know, or five, you know, I, I hung around, I think, till 06 or 07, but it, it removed any kind of creativity. It went from tweaking a whole body and, you know, English wheel and hand fabricated and really I'm going to I'm going to figure this out and make this template fit like they want it to. But we're going to get a little bit more. It removed all of that. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to build a cookie cutter race car. I, I can't do it. And you go to the wind tunnel and you're testing button head bolts in a side skirt because it's a half a count of drag. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. And that, that's why I was curious because I've heard that from other folks, other racers. Once you shrink the box down and you take away that creativity, it, it really removes a key element of any type of racing. And I think if you look at the evolution of things, if we would have had COT cars in 1940, we'd all still be driving Model T's. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Good, good you, know, you know, we'd all still be going the exact same speed. I mean, on one hand, I understand the reasoning behind it. It helps cost. We spent millions and millions of dollars on those Speedway cars, millions. But the money was there. You know, was it fair to the smaller teams? Well, no, but you chose to be in the top tier of NASCAR. You yeah. chose to be there. The problem is, is when they come out and say, okay, we're going to put everybody in the same box. Well, those big teams still have the big engineering departments. They still have the big budgets. They're going to start narrowing it down with some of the new and latest, greatest, super finite technologies. And we're going to be back in the same boat. 
the gap will close a little bit, but you're still going to have B and C teams that are not going to have 30 engineers trying to figure out how to put a cam lock in a battery box cover. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and make exactly. the it's a very tough situation from both sides, and I understand both sides of it. You know, I kind of lean more to the creativity part, but what do you do? Are you saving money so the guys in the back can have a chance to run up front? Maybe work a little bit harder and use the resources you have. There's always something. Well, and if you think back to cars in the 70s, I mean, you you had to drive some of the 70s NASCAR cars without a doubt. And you still do today, so I'm not saying you don't. I've been real fortunate to work with Roush Yates engines for the last 10 years. And I've been very fortunate to have Roush Yates engines in every vehicle I've ever set a record in, you know, on concrete. And we started with the old C iteration motor, which was the late 80s, mid 90s NASCAR engine. And when I first, I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. And then when we upgraded to the D motor, which was the mid 2000s motor, you know, years ago, I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. And then three years ago, when we upgraded to the current FR9 engine package from Roush Yates Engines, it's almost like an electric motor. At 9,600 RPM, there's not one harmonic in the gear shift. There's not one harmonic in the seat. And it just hums right along and it, it keeps making power. So the technology from the original, you know, bulldozer engine, which was the C motor, you know, that thing, you go down there in the 39 and it would just, you know, like that. But, you know, the FR9, it's like this. So Do you have an FR9 in the Talladega or what do you have? Oh, yeah. There? We actually have FR9s in, in Project 39, our 39 Ford truck that oh, went cool. to 13 at Arkansas. Uh, we have FR9 in our cup car that we went 236 with at Spaceport. And then the Talladega also has an FR9 in it that went 228 at Spaceport. And that was, we were testing right before Bonneville. So we only turned it 8,800. Mm, so you got, <laughs> you got some left in the tank, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So let's talk about your current projects, Aaron. So you went from NASCAR. When you started the garage shop, you mentioned being part of at a variety of teams of an R&D team that's a couple of people. I imagine when you started the garage shop, it's a big leap, right? All of a sudden, you're you're starting your own team of two, three, four, however many folks you you started with. What was that like, and how was it making that transition? The the garage shop really started with a really good friend of mine, Bob Bowser. He was a body hanger at DEI. I, we were really good friends. He's since passed away, but he was a founding member of the garage shop. So we decided we're just going to hang speedway bodies in it for ARCA teams and Xfinity teams, Bush teams at the time, in my little shop at home. I mean, at the time, it was $35,000 to hang a really nice body. And you could do one, you could hang a body in 10 to 12 days. Done. We had little to no overhead. Between the two of us, we had all the equipment. So we, we did that and, and it, it was really good. We enjoyed it. And then NASCAR, you, you know, they came out with the more templates and, and we saw the writing on the wall with the composite bodies. And so we started doing vintage NASCAR restorations. Over the years, we've probably restored 20 or 30 early 90s, mid 2000s cup cars that race with SBRA. And we did quite a few of those cars and, and really enjoyed that. Because it was going back to racing, we could do all the things to the car that we wanted to do when they were racing in NASCAR, but now it, now there's really no rule book. So, 
So we went, a good friend of mine in Texas had a Harvick car. And I mean, I think we won Indy five or six times. Yes. SBR event there. That car's probably won a hundred races over the last 10 years. It's, but we were allowed to go outside the box and we also kept upgrading the car with current technology and things we were learning. And one of the parameters that I told Bob, I said, all the templates are still going to mostly fit. You, you know, <laughs> it's close. It's, it's close. close. Yeah. yeah. You know, if they pull an overall out, we might have a bit of a problem, but we can talk our way through it because they don't know how it works. So, so from there, we ended up having all these parts left over. And one day we were standing there. Of course, this always happens over a 12 pack of beer. You know, we had a, you know, an engine, transmissions, rear end housings, all this stuff. And I had bought this 39 Ford truck. It was a cab and a bed and just some junk. And we were looking at all this stuff and we put it all in a pile and said, well, let's build a land speed vehicle. It, it, and, you know, so, reasonable, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's kind of, a, so we, we built that truck and with a goal of going 200. First time out, it went 186. And then uh, we went, come home, did a few changes, went back a couple of weeks later, went 197. And then the year was over. And then we changed the C motor to the D motor and we went 201. And wow. then we kind of let the truck set a little bit. And uh, we decided to get it back out for Steve's streetcar suit shootout deal. Uh, Mr. Yates kindly put one of his FR9s in it, and the truck went 214. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. And it's street legal. Who drives that, Aaron? Do you have somebody in your shop, or do you have somebody like that? I drive them. What's that drive like at 200? Cadillac. Cadillac. Really? No kidding. It, it, everybody always looks at it and goes, oh, you're crazy for doing that. It's actually the best driving vehicle really that we have and it's the wheelbase it's a 135 inch wheelbase so the center of gravity is literally on the ground and uh it's our first truck so my heart's kind of you know it's kind of with that vehicle and it's it's always been good to me hey speaking of awesome vehicles so the daytona and the talladega let's talk about those was that another 12 pack of beer idea hanging out in the shop That, that that was actually a candy bar car back in 1970 my dad had a 70 roadrunner 383 four speed, you know, rally stripes and all that stuff. And there was a Daytona, new Daytona sitting on the lot down in, we lived in Massachusetts at the time in Boston. And we drove down there in a snowstorm uh, because I, I had, I had a candy bar. I think it was a Mars bar because my dad's was cool. Like this car, I was, I don't know, five or six years old. I can't, we got to stop and get a candy bar. <laughs> that was a big deal, you know? So we pull in the parking lot and I remember I had my candy bar because my dad yelled at me. I threw the candy bar on the floor when I saw the Daytona. <laughs> so, you know, and it was a snowstorm and everything else. And that's the way those cars were used back then. So from there, I mean, it, I just fell in love with that car from the day I saw it. And, you know, as life goes, you get family and kids and you always have these dreams and your career gets better. You get busy. Uh, In 2007, when Goldie passed away in 1998, Bobby's sister, she told me that one of the greatest things that Bobby ever felt he accomplished was the record on a salt flat. And if that ever fell, would we go back and get it, you know, and and honor him? So in 2007, I was flipping around on the Internet, which I still didn't fully understand at that point. 
and, and saw this article about this guy, Russ Wicks, that took a Jimmy Spencer car and went 226, and Bobby was 217. Mm. So I'm like, okay, well, I got some friends. I wasn't, you know, I was we were doing our stuff at the shop. I wasn't working full-time for a team. I called some friends at Dodge two days later. I was talking to Phil Flack and, you know, Ryan Isabel and a couple of those guys, and we put a deal together. But part of the deal is we had to be there in three weeks. and. Wow. Ray Evernham gave us a speedway car. Joey Arrington built a motor. We put this whole car together in this like three, cut the body off of it, redid everything because we're not going, you know, it's going to be stock, but kind of like stock. Yeah. <laughs> and we had templates. We, we did have templates. The FIA required us to bring templates. Wow. So we made templates. <laughs> that was with an 06 Dodge. And that was in 2007. And we went out there and I had never been to Bonneville. So we took, we t- I called Russ Wicks because I didn't know how to drive a car at Bonneville. So I had Russ come and drive the car and we teamed up with him and we set a record, uh, you know, a Guinness record, you know, so I don't, it's not a USAC record. It's kind of a, I don't know what you want to call it, but we went 244.9. Wow. And then the kind of, that's when the whole thing kind of, you know, okay, we did that and we were growing the garage shop. We built the 39. But I always wanted to go back with a 69 Daytona. And in 2018 or 19, we were out there with our with our Roush Fenway, Roush Yates powered cup car. And I met a fellow, uh, Vance Kirshner from Wilmington, Delaware, that owns a company called Labware. And he has a pretty amazing car collection and, and he's a motorhead at heart. We just kind of became friends, you know, and he asked me, you know, what my what I thought where and I didn't really know him at the time it was the first time we met and I told him my idea and he said that's pretty neat I didn't talk to him after that a couple of months he's my nephew and I'd like to come to SEMA can can you get us some tickets and through my relationship with Drew Patey and Safety Clean and Buddy Judy and we did the expedition SEMA the off-road trips to SEMA and all that I said yeah we'll get you I'll take care of it so Drew stepped up and got him some passes and he showed up and long story Shorter, we, we went to dinner that night and he goes, hey, I, w- I want to be a part of that Daytona project you're working on. And we shook hands, made an agreement. I saw him six months later and we were taking the car to the wind tunnel. You know, at that point, our friendship started growing uh, and it's led into many wonderful projects. Uh, one of his things was he's like, well, how are we going to have an aero war if we don't have a Talladega? And I, and I said, well, <clears throat> I happen to have an old Holman Moody Talladega sitting behind the shop. We could cut the skin off of that. <laughs> and so we did. And uh, that was that was a whole story in itself, you know, back to the King racing days when I worked with Donnie Allison, Hutch Strickland. You know, Donnie would come in the shop and yell and scream at us. But you respected Donnie. You, you know, when he said move the fender over an eighth of an inch, he cut the fender off and you moved it over an eighth of an inch. And I like that structure. And, uh, so we told everybody we were going to build a Leroy Yarborough number 98 Talladega because Donnie was a friend of ours. He'd come up, tell us how to, you know, tweak this, tweak that, and, which is really kind of funny. It's another story. So when we unveiled the car, we had uh, Doug and Jeff Clark uh, from Roush Yates Engines, and we had the whole team at Charlotte Motor Speedway and Victory Lane, and we had a cover over the car, and we unveiled it to Donnie as the number 27 uh, Sonny King Ford Talladega and uh, that was probably one of the happiest moments of my life to see see some joy in his eyes and that people still cared 
and still respected him to do something like that. And, and all that wouldn't have been possible without Vance's partnership and, and all the, the guys we have in the shop here. They're all old cup guys. They're all real fabricators. And they're problem solvers, not problem makers. Yeah, those cars, Aaron, are absolutely amazing. And that car, it is built like a show car. I mean, the attention to detail, the paint. And you, your shop did that car, did you say six months? Six to eight months. Wow. Construction time. The entire car, including the chassis, everything was built from scratch. Wow. No blueprints. No pictures, no, you know, we used some drawings of the old K&K car because I didn't want to get too far off base of what they had. And we actually took the Daytona to Bill Werblin's museum in Alabama where he has the real K&K Dodge and really side by side, they're pretty identical in shape and everything. There's a few little changes, but, you know, those guys were working with a street car and we hung a body on a chassis that we built. So we had a little bit more, you, you know, room to gravitate a little bit, but we really studied the pictures of, you know, what Robert G and Harry Hyde, and, you know, that entire team in 1970, 69 and 70 did with that Daytona, you know, and we, we did that to honor Bobby. He took that original iron head, iron block Hemi and went 217 miles an hour at Monoville. You know, the Daytona ran 226 miles an hour off the trailer on concrete at Arkansas. The Talladega has been 228 or so. I knew if we went to Bonneville and I knew what we had before and ran 244, I knew we could go some big speed. But the ride out there was very somber for me because I thought a lot about him and a lot about what Bobby did and that whole team. And we had done this TV show, this production that's getting finished up about the whole history of racing and what those guys raced with and and where they came from i made a conscious decision i just wanted to go as fast as bobby and the last run you know we were out there playing around and vance was driving the daytona and uh you know i was driving the talladega i mean that car was two and over 200 miles an hour at the two and a quarter and we had two and three quarters miles to go so i knew we could put down some massive speed you know for those cars but Vance was a rookie driver in that was the 50th anniversary of what Bobby accomplished on the salt with his use 26 USAC records. So right before I, they put the window net up, I asked my son's engineer here, the lead engineer. I asked him, I said, how much wheel spin do you think we have? You know, from what you're seeing on these timesheets, he said about 800 RPMs. I said, so I need to be about 8,700 RPM or less, you know, 85 to 87 to go to 215. He's 215, 216. He says, yep. And so we went through the four mile marker and I kind of held it right there at the, you know, 86, 87. And it came out, we went to 217.0 miles an hour. Bobby went to 216.914. And at that point I said, that's all I wanted to do, put it in trailer. It's such a cool story that you, you fulfilled that promise. I didn't feel that going out there and we didn't do all this work to go beat those guys. We did it to honor them, honor them. And I felt that honoring them would be going the same speed they did and telling their story, not going out there and going 240 miles an hour. Then it erases what the story is. And I, I didn't want to do that. We'll go back someday, you know, when this all settles down and, but, you know, the concrete, that's ours, and we'll give the salt to Bobby. So we've got the Ford Camp, 
You've got the Mopar camp, which car, and, and using the word better is really difficult because they're both different, right? But which car's gone faster on concrete at the mile so far? Unofficially, the Ford has, and, and that's because of Donnie yeah. Allison. When we built that car, Brian Cram, he's the crew chief on that car, and him and I worked together at DEI. You know, we, we kept driving, you know, back then it was get the back of the car out, you know, get the back of the car down, get the back of the car down. And at Arkansas, boy, that Talladega was a handful. I ran 226 and we used the entire racetrack to get there. And the Daytona was straight as an arrow. A conversation came to my mind that Donnie was here one day in the shop and we were hanging a body. He goes, you got to have the back of these cars up in the air. And I'm thinking, nah, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe a Talladega, you know. And so as soon as we got back from Arkansas, we went to the wind tunnel. And sure enough, the more we raised the back of that car, the L over D value got way better, made better downforce with less drag. So we took the car to Spaceport, the Talladega to Spaceport, prior the weekend before Bonneville and tested it. And, uh, I mean, I ran 220, unofficially, 228 in a mile with one hand on a wheel. Just by changing wow. the, at the pitch of the car. How much did you raise the rear up, Aaron? Maybe maybe an inch and a half. And then when we got back from Arkansas, we cut the whole front of the car off. The whole front of the car, Brian cut the whole front of the car off. We worked on getting a little bit more carb spacer on it. So we reshaped the hood. And then we cut the whole front off and we lowered that, I think, another seven, eight. You know, seven, eights. Because the, the mechanics of the pitch angle, it just wasn't right. And so we fixed all that, and uh, that car came to life. I mean, it was just, it's an, it's the talent, the, the Daytona was an amazing vehicle to drive. The Talladega was like riding a wild horse, and, and then it became a show pony. And the, both cars drive extremely well, and, and they're very tunable because they have all, we built those cars from the ground up with all current cup technology. You know, we built mm. both chassis. Everything, you know, it's cambered rear ends in them, AP six piston brakes, cooling, you know, it's all PWR, CNR cooling, Roush Yates engines in, in the in the Talladega and Penske R6 in the Dodge, uh, race pack hubs. I mean, everything is all, you, you know, the highest level of technology, either from before the COT or current technology that's better than what we had then. You know, so we kind of combined everything into one package. Any desire to build a Chevy to throw into the mix or is that, is that nothing you really desire to do? You know, I'd, I'd like to. And really, when you look back at NASCAR, I mean, the, the king of the hills, you had the, the Boss 429 Fords and you had the Hemi Dodges and then you had a big block Chevy. You know, I mean, that's to be defined, and, and I would really like to do that just because, you know, I think Chevy was a little behind the eight ball back in, in the 68 to 71 deal there. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they really focused on NASCAR maybe until the, the mid-70s and then more so in the 80s and obviously in the 90s and, and now. You know, I think it would be great to build a and, and get an SB2 motor or, you know, a current RO7 motor and let's get after it. You know, it's it's interesting, Aaron, because you're right. Mopar had the wing cars. Ford had the Talladega, purpose-built, aero-defined packages. And then Chevy just kind of went, eh, go go make it work with what we have. You know, they Take never this really. Chevelle. Right. And, Smo yeah. and Smokey Eunuch, I mean, he really took a pig in a blanket 
and made it like, I mean, that was the guy, you know, when he made that seven, eight scale Nova or Chevelle or whatever it was. And- oh, that, that story's outstanding. <laughs> when he had the identical one in the parking lot, the NASCAR <laughs> official said, this car doesn't look right. And he goes, well, there's one right out in the parking lot. Let's go compare. Took yeah, it out. yeah. They happened to match up perfectly. And the official walks away scratching his head. That and when he, and when they, they said he had two, you know, his fuel tank was too big. They took the fuel tank out of it and drove it back to the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's there's there's well there will always only be one Smokey Eunuch. There is we got to get Smokey got to get Smokey Eunuch in the Hall of Fame NASCAR Hall of Fame. I think without a doubt, without a doubt, Aaron, and it's shocking that he isn't there. It really. I think, is. I think they need to bury that hatchet. Yeah, <laughs> it's been long enough. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, no no doubt. Think about the influence he had the developments, the technology that came from, from his. And, and again, you said it earlier, it's interpretation of the rules. And if he was the rule doesn't say you can't do it, do it. And that's racing. That's, uh, you know, leading us back to Bonneville, you know, in this rules talk, that's what draws us, draws us to Bonneville and land speed racing is you're not racing 40 other guys. You race in a class, there's safety rules, and there's your engine rule. There's no suspension rules. You can run suspension or you don't. I mean, we focus very hard on our suspension technology for, for Bonneville. We focus hard on our engine technologies through Roush Yates engines. Uh, you know, a lot our aero stuff that, you know, we have experience in. But it lets us be us. It lets everybody be creative. And it's a big family and you work together and you help each other out. Um, he was really good friends of mine, Kiwi Paul and Ken Co. We're building two thirty-four uh, gas uh, street roadsters for Bonneville this year. Two brand new cars. You know they came. They came. They have a roadster, and they're also inspectors. And they were here a month ago, and we went over a lot of the safety stuff, which I feel we've done to our roadsters, which is innovative. It'll make an impact in the future. You know, and we still do work for NASCAR. Actually, you know, NASCAR trackside services, we've designed some safety modules for them for their firefighting training courses, a cutaway car so they can remove the drivers and stuff like that. Now we're working on a a project for F1, FIA Formula One, where we're going to build some safety trucks for those guys. So we're very involved in the safety aspect of racing, too. And I've always been if it's a safety issue, that's not a gray area. That is period. The line stops there. We don't like to follow the rules on safety. We like to make them better. And we do that through, you know, communication with the Bonneville inspectors. You know, that's why we had them come here and and show them some of the innovations that we're working on. And that's either from the NASCAR stuff or the drag racing things, some of the stuff that we've done in the past. You know, I've been to the NASCAR firefighting training five or six times through, through those classes, those four or five day classes. So, you know, and we did a lot of safety stuff after after Big E passed away. You know, we worked on a lot of safety projects there. So I'd like to use that experience to further, you know, the safety aspect at Bonneville and try to help help those guys and work together as a team and come up with cost-effective, viable solutions for problems. Let's be proactive, not reactive. Yeah, it's a, it's an excellent approach, Aaron. I've often told people, if you're going to overspend anywhere when you go racing, do it in safety gear. What do you what do you want to do next? So I know land speed racing, you've got projects going on for that. 
Is that the main direction with the garage shop or do you have, you mentioned SVRA? Well, that's funny you asked that. Uh, we, we have a, uh, we're right now, uh, we started an engineering program that my son runs about a year and a half ago. Uh, their major project right now is a gas blown streamliner for Bonneville. Uh, hopefully our targets 450 miles an hour, uh, in that car, we're working together with some really good people. Uh, Kenny Duttweiler in California, uh, we're working on our engine program out there. Uh, we're also working with a company called Corvette engineering. That's doing all the CFD and body design through our engineering department in conjunction. And then also we have, you know, all the rapid prototyping capabilities. We have FEA solid works. You know, so we're investing, we're investing heavily into technology for the future, both in efficiency, safety, and, and you know, in production, when it gets down to the floor, got to have the right equipment and the right tools to be able to accomplish what engineering, we got to bend metal this way. You got to make sure you have the tools that these guys can bend the metal to, to how, how it's being specced out. So it's uh it's, it's a ladder and you got to take each step and you know, you just can't go up here with engineering and not put any infrastructure underneath of it. So you, you and I talked a little bit at uh, Arkansas about Bonneville and some of the challenges. I thought that you had mentioned that you never, ever have no wheel spin, even at 205, 210, because you're trying to push the car through the air and you always have several hundred RPM a tire slip. Is Do I remember that right? Is that accurate? Yeah. I, you know, like so it goes back to you know, we were trying to, I was trying to figure out to get that 217 target speed and, you know, Spencer did the calculations and we're about 800 RPM of uh, wheel spin. I don't know what that calculates in mile per hour, probably 10 to maybe 15 miles an hour wheel spin, uh, you know, on, on Bonneville. Uh, So it's, it's kind of like the gas pedal is like, you just don't go like that. You just got to kind (laughs) of, You might get it down, you know, a quarter inch, but you might have to back up a 16th and go another quarter. You, you know, it's a gradual, I like to call it, I, I use the step process. Kind of a little bit, let it settle in a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, and obviously your goal is to get it all the way to the floor. And You know, everybody has their own style and their own way of driving out there. There's a hundred things that could be right. There's a hundred things that could be wrong. I just try to keep the car on a racetrack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. However yeah, fast it goes, one, it right? goes. That's that's how fast it goes, and it stayed on the racetrack. That's a good. Yeah. Run. <laughs> can you? Can you? Uh, I'm assuming you can run traction control, but I would guess in that environment, traction control is only going to give you so much, right? Well, I actually picked the Sea Gas Roadster class because it's a spec body. Is they're very tight on the bodies, but okay. they they turn you loose on the suspension. Uh, our rear suspension we actually stole from current dirt late models with a fifth and sixth coil and a torque arm and bird cages, the front suspension, you know, all Penske shocks and uh, Bonneville's like dirt. So why not use dirt stuff? Yeah. Yep. Makes <laughs> so, sense. And it, you know, our shock program, we're growing that John Quinn from Penske's helping us a lot. Uh, you know, we have, the, you know, spring smashers and Penske shock dynos. So we're, we've invested heavily into that because uh, when you go to Bonneville, you might get a run or two a day. You really need to know what you're doing and be prepared when you get there. We're going to do a pull down work with the roadsters uh, at, at Penske engineering and stuff like that. So uh, a lot of really neat stuff there, you know, for the future. 
Aaron, do you use electronic shock packages or are these all uh, mechanically adjusted? Me shocks? Mechanical. Okay. I'm old school. I, yeah. I mean, we're, they're, they're still trying to force me into this streamliner stuff, and it, it, which is kind of fun this year because last year Vance was driving the Dodge and I was driving the Ford and kind of had this little team spirit going, you know. So this year, you know, we got the engineers and the, the electronics, uh, you know, against the uh, boneheads with a gas pedal <laughs> and a tape measure. So, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun to see how that, you know, to see those guys grow, you know, with their electronics packages and learn that move to streamliner and, and, and hopefully we'll be able to be there and, and push them a little bit and apply some pressure to them under a competition situation. Aaron, is there a favorite out of all the things that you've done? Is there a favorite build I, when I look back on it, I really enjoy the land speed racing and the technology of it. One of my favorite projects is we did Expedition SEMA, which we re, we built a 1970 FJ40, a Toyota linked and locked and rough stuff housing. You know, it's a tank. We drove that vehicle on the Transamerica Trail from North Carolina to Las Vegas, Nevada, off-road, 30 days, 6,000 miles. We did that trip. And then to back it up, the following year, we mapped and found the original Oregon Trail uh, and left out Independence, Missouri, which was a safety clean branch on the marshalling yard of the original. So, so we did the Oregon Trail off-road 30 days, and then we did the Continental Divide the third year, which went from Canada to Mexico and up. Wow. But the Oregon Trail trip really was unbelievable because you saw the trials and tribulations I mean, we went up over Rocky Ridge out there in Utah on the Mormon Oregon Trail. It took on my truck on 37s, coilovers and link front and rear took all it could. We It took us a day to go 10 miles. And these people pulled hand carts and oxen wagons up over this. And we did it in the wintertime. I mean, we were October, so weather conditions were not always favorable. <laughs> you With all the equipment we had to be able to do it, to think of those people in a wagon, and see the old homesteads where somebody's wife said, I've had enough. We're stopping here. And, and, and they built their ranch, you, you know, to see those old homesteads and the relics of that really set home with me. You know, my family came from Italy, third generation, and they came over here with nothing and worked hard and, and, and lived the American dream. And that's what those pioneers did and our forefathers. And, and I respect that a lot. It, it's really, it's humbling when you see the problems that they had compared to the problems we have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It makes, that, makes that pothole you hit, you know, earlier on my way to work. Not so bad. Right. It's that, that's awesome, Aaron. What a cool way to observe history and to, and to see it from the eyes of the settlers, like you said, that had to go through what they did. And that's awesome. What a, those three trips. Amazing. Hopefully and you put all those into a book someday. And you, uh, we have a YouTube channel. It's uh, the garage shop on YouTube. And uh, our Web page is the garage shop 200. Our Instagram is uh, the Garage Shop 200, I believe. And then YouTube is the Garage Shop and, and Facebook. We're the Garage Shop on Facebook also. And I'd really like to thank all the people that support those platforms and the growth that they've had has been very organic and interactive. And I really enjoy seeing the comments. And, you know, when we share pictures of projects we're working on and and hear people say, oh, you know, I remember going to those races or, or seeing this or seeing that. It means a lot to me. And, and, I, and I like to think that the garage shop not only builds cars, but we make people smile every now and then, you know, just a little bit. That's what's so great about Bonneville. 
the cars from our era are still alive. They're still kicking. And some of them are still going 300 miles an hour. You know, and you get to go out there and see the innovation in these, you know, the, in their garage built, mostly garage built vehicles. And you see the innovation and in, in that these guys live for this. And those are the people that I like to be around because they make me a better person. It was awesome getting to know you better in Arkansas. And I really appreciate the relationship, the friendship. Aaron, can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.